24-year-old Jennifer Kessie disappeared January 24, 2006. She was last seen at her condo on Conroy Road. To solve a missing persons case, which has haunted Orlando investigators. So we're still waiting for that one person to come through with the one bit of information that could bring Jennifer home. This is Unconcluded, an investigation into the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. I'm your host, Sean Gerd. Thanks for coming back for episode two. This is where the wheels are going to start turning. In episode one, we introduced you to the 2006 disappearance of 24-year-old Jennifer Kessie in Orlando, Florida. We reviewed the basic timeline and what I referred to then as the facts of the case. If you haven't had a chance to check out episode one, you might want to do that first. The basic timeline included Jennifer's St. Croix vacation with her boyfriend Robert, her day at work on Monday, January 23rd, her 10 p.m. phone call to Robert later that night, and her mysterious disappearance at some point after that call, but before she was expected at work the next morning. In the days that followed, her car was discovered a mile away from her home, and a mysterious person of interest was captured on video leaving that car around noon on January 24th. Episode 1 was brief, and just included the facts. Or so I thought. As I came to learn after we published episode 1, and as you will on this show, things that I thought were facts are anything but. And things that I thought I knew, I had to reconsider. There's no shortage of coverage of this case in the media, print, internet, there's armchair detectives on every corner of the internet speculating on the finest details and hanging on every thread of information. There are theories everywhere you look, some of them wild and outrageous. But all of this conjecture is based off of certain perceived facts of this case, many of which we shared with you in episode one. But as you're going to learn on this show, some of it, it's just not that cut and dry. There are details that have been reported as fact from well-respected sources that aren't even facts at all. Because of this, and other developments I'll share shortly, I completely scrapped the outline for episode 2 before I'd even started. And so with that, let's start again. As you heard previously, there isn't a lot to go on in pinpointing the timeline of Jennifer's disappearance. We can narrow her actual abduction down to about a 10-hour window from 10 p.m. Monday, January 23, 2006, right after her phone call with her boyfriend Robert, to roughly 8 a.m. the next morning, January 24th, when Jennifer would have left for work. For this episode, we're going to consider the possibilities in regards to the timing of her disappearance and the events that took place between the two locations that are central to this case. Jennifer's condo at the Mosaic at Millennia, and the Huntington on the Green condo, which was just about one and two-tenths miles away. It's worth noting that both of these locations are on the same street, with a different name, depending on which side of a certain highway you're on. 
Jennifer's was labeled as Conroy Road, and the Huntington on the Green is Americana Boulevard. But for all intents and purposes, they're the same street. At the end of episode one, I left you with the fact that at 10.40 p.m. on January 23rd, Monday, the night before Jennifer was reported missing, her phone was powered down and the battery was removed. And that's where I planned to pick up to start this show. But when facts are no longer facts, things change. We're going to come back to the phone in a minute. Why? Well, less than 48 hours after we released episode 1, I got a text message. And it completely changed everything. The person on the other end of that text called me the next afternoon. Hello? Hi, John. It's Joyce Kessie. How are you? That's Jennifer's mother. And if it wasn't already, this thing just got serious. The first time I talked to Joyce Kessie, it was weird. I felt like I'd talked to her before even though that wasn't the case. But also because, as I could quickly tell, she's a genuine person, the kind of person who's just easy to talk to. We talked about things unrelated to the case, my job, family at home. But we also talked about things that aren't easy to talk about, about Jennifer and her disappearance. And to Joyce's credit, it's so clear that she is just as passionate about finding Jennifer now, 11 years later, as she was back in 2006. And with that passion, her willingness to share information and spend time on the phone with me, it's changed me somehow. I'm not sure I can even describe it. But the things that she shared, things I'd never known about the last 11 years, things about awful people, and awful things, like this story that she shared. And what, you know, there's so many things, Sean, that would make people's hair curl. Like, it was the first two weeks of Jen's abduction, and we, we have all the dates and everything written down. But um, there was a woman that came up to me in a shopping center one day. I was with a girlfriend, and we were feverishly putting flyers out. And this woman came up to me crying and told me that she was the person of interest. What? And it was really weird because she had dark hair and she had her hair in a, a small tight bun. You know how they, you can't really tell about the hairdo of the person of interest? It turned out that the woman, you, I would love the opportunity, maybe one day, because I'm, uh, if you have a, a day or time that we could talk, you you would be blown away at the sickness in the world of that woman did that to me, to us, to Jennifer, I say. And do you know what her reason was? She was trying to jam up her um, live-in boyfriend. Yeah. She wanted people, she wanted the police to raid her house to, because he had drugs in her house. And she didn't use the drugs, but he did. And she decided that that was going to be the way that she would be able to get him out of the house. I don't know why these things hit me the way that they did. 
but somehow this makes it mean more. It seems more important. This was always about Jennifer, but maybe now it's more about her family too. And that, well, that was unexpected. Let's be honest. I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to speak to her or anyone for this podcast, but I went ahead anyways. It wasn't about that. It was about trying to find answers and searching for them, continuing the awareness of Jennifer Cassie. But as luck would have it, and with the help of a family friend of hers, I was able to make a connection with Joyce, first on text and then over the phone. It's been a revelation of sorts, and it's been taking this show down a different path, a path that we're going to start to travel right now. Jennifer's last known whereabouts were in her condo at the Mosaic at Millennia on Conroy Road in Orlando, just down the street from the mall at Millennia. Right around 10 p.m., she spoke with her boyfriend Robert on the phone, and at that point, the disappearance window begins. I told you about Jennifer's phone being powered off just after 10.40 p.m., and to me, this was alarming. Her phone being turned off and the battery removed And along with her phone, also the phone of her brother's friend, Travis, it just seemed to be damning evidence that, in my opinion, proved that something happened the night of January 23rd. What else could explain it? And so when I talked to Joyce, I asked her about it. I was looking to confirm what I already knew. But her response, it surprised me. They were, they were powered off, the batteries were removed, which rendered them useless. And they know, the police know the time that that happened, but 11 years later, that's something the police haven't shared with us. Like we asked them, there's just certain things, and it's frustrating as all hell, but there's just certain things that they don't tell us the specifics for it because, you know, if they ever find a person they want to be able to convict. So I guess we don't know what time the phones were powered down. I thought they were powered down at 1040. I'd seen that everywhere, including the guest book on the Kessie family website. And later in our conversation, I asked her again. I needed to nail this down, and I needed to make sure that we really didn't know what time it had happened. Online, there seemed to be a lot of references to those phones being turned off the night before. Is that's just not something that you've ever been told? No, okay. and Lord, no. So, I think those are maybe people um, fictionalizing. Okay. But no, if anybody knows, the family would know. Sure. And if law enforcement isn't telling us, they certainly wouldn't tell anyone else. The working theory that I had planned to lay out that the abduction possibly took place at night on January 23rd, it just took a major hit. If we can't confirm the time that those phones were powered off, then using them as evidence that the crime happened the night of January 23rd would be foolish. It was pretty much at this moment that I knew I was going back to the drawing board. There was more to find out about the phones. 
I asked about the rumblings I'd seen online about the ping data on the phones. That just before they were powered off, they'd pinged away from Jennifer's condo. When cell phone towers, and again, 11 years ago, towers, the technology's improved. They might not do it this the way they did it 11 years ago. But if a cell phone tower was being taken down for any reason, like a temporary, um, say a temporary glitch in technology, then what happens is the signals then ping to another cell phone tower. Initially, the two, our two, uh, initially, the two detectives thought that Jennifer was taken that night. They thought that Jennifer, Jennifer, these two gumshoe detectives thought that Jennifer would have gone out after 10 o'clock at night to take Logan's friend's phone to a UPS or a FedEx mail envelope place mm-hmm. at 10 o'clock at night. We kept trying to tell them there's no way in hell she works where they have FedEx and UPS right on site, and that's what she had told Logan's friend that she was going to do. There's no way that she would have gotten off the phone at 10 o'clock at night with Rob and then decided, oh, gee, Travis needs his phone really bad. Let me go drive out and drive around and try to find a place that I could FedEx the phone. Jennifer was too smart, Sean. She knew that it wouldn't make any difference if she did it at night or in the morning, number one. Number two, personal safety was something that Jen was very much aware of most of her teenage and early adult life. So there's just no way. And the frustration that we had is that the law enforcement kept focusing on that, that the time of her, uh, the time of the crime if you will, occurred in the evening, that after 10 o'clock at night, that night. I mean, there's just no way. So if we can't determine when the phones were actually powered down, and we can't rely on the cell phone pings for any relevant data, never mind the fact that the police have refused to share that data, where are we left? We're left with an interesting event, one that I have no doubt is extremely important to this case. But it's not much help in determining much of anything right now. Without confirmation of the exact times, there's just not much that's useful. Hopefully that will change, but right now, there's not much we can do with it. So with the phones out of the equation, for now, what do we have left that indicates this crime occurred at night? The answer? Nothing at all. On the other hand, there is quite a bit of evidence to suggest that the crime happened in the morning. Remember, there was water found in her shower and a damp towel. There was clothes on her bed. It looked as though she had slept in it. A lot of evidence pointed to her being awake that morning and getting ready for work. Jennifer never showered, never ever showered at night to go to work the next day. Sure, she'd shower at night if she was going out, you know, to a club or something like that or a party, but she was not the type of person that showered the night before going to work. And not that there's anything wrong with that because there's a lot of people that do that, but that wasn't Jennifer. And that's how we knew. 
plus she had a lot of, you know how most women have a lot of uh, shampoo and cream rinse bottles in their showers? Sure. And she had a tub. So, you know, the corners where water collects when you're taking a shower? Mm-hmm. There was, it wasn't that the walls were wet. There was still water in the corners behind her shower bottle. So, there you go. Mm-hmm. She showered. The wet towel that she had draped over her um, washing machine. And then she had, you know, the underwear and night, the T-shirt that she wore to bed the night before on her bathroom floor. The contacts were out of her contact case. Her eyeglasses were left behind. Okay. She had, you know, three articles of clothing on her bed. And did she take those, those so, um, contacts out at night, obviously, when she went to bed? So she, yes. Okay. She, yes. Mm-hmm. Joyce seems convinced that these clues show that Jennifer got ready for work in the morning. And it's a convincing argument, but I wasn't sold yet on the water in the bathtub. Here in Florida, it it takes hours for it to evaporate. It doesn't take that long. Unless it puddles up or there's some other explanation, the showers dry pretty fast. But the shampoo bottles was an interesting detail. And so, I headed off to my bathroom and I checked my wife's corner of the shower. And this was roughly 3 p.m. on a day that she had showered that morning. And you know what? There was some water. Not much, but a little bit in that corner behind the bottles. So, I'm not sure what to think. And I don't know if the shower tells us much. It, It probably tells us that it didn't happen the night before. But something that was more important to me were. I found more convincing was the towel. I've done a few home experiments. Yeah, I know, you can take those for what they're worth, but it was interesting. After using a towel at night and hanging it up, by morning, it was bone dry. And I just didn't see any way that that towel could have been used the night of January 23rd and still have been wet the next day. In my opinion, there is no way that the towel was used the night before. Something else that Joyce mentioned that I found interesting was Jennifer's contacts. They were missing. The container was on the counter, but the actual contacts were gone, and her glasses were left behind. To me, the only thing that makes sense is that Jennifer was wearing them. And again, That paints the story of her getting ready for work in the morning. It's worth mentioning that plenty of theories surrounding this case suggest a possible staging of Jennifer's condo. That the perpetrator opened her contacts case and took out her contacts and left the case and carefully placed her towel on the dryer with just the right dampness and laid out her clothing for the morning and made sure they all matched. To me, this all just feels like a major stretch. I'm not ready to rule it out, but... In my opinion, it's just not very likely. So am I giving up on the nighttime abduction theory already? It's looking that way. And maybe we'll be able to nail down some information on the cell phones later, but right now, in my opinion, this crime happened the morning of January 24th. As Joyce and I talked on the phone, we bounced from topic to topic. Me with a thousand questions on a thousand things. 
But the most interesting thing I'd hear in my conversations with her was something I didn't even have a question about. It was something that I had already accepted as fact. Logan and his buddy Travis got there at 3, and Drew and I arrived in Orlando at 3.15. You obviously are aware that there's a lot of misconception out saying that Jennifer returned from a cruise. She never took a cruise. She flew directly from Fort Lauderdale to St. Croix. That Sunday, they met their flight got canceled. They wound up taking another flight from St. Croix. That flight took them into Miami. And a friend of theirs came down to Miami and picked them up. There was never a cruise. And I'm sure you've read a lot of information that talks about the cruise. There was no cruise. I knew that there wasn't a cruise. But what surprised me was what she said before that. That Logan had arrived around 3 p.m. And that her and Drew had arrived at 3.15. That's not what I'd heard. Remember, I told you in episode one that Logan arrived around noon, the same time that Jennifer's car was being dumped at the Huntington on the Green, and that the Kessies arrived about an hour later. I thought maybe I'd misheard her, and I just continued on with our conversation. But after our call, I listened back to the audio. Joyce definitely said, Logan arrived at 3 o'clock, and they arrived at 3.15. So. I must have gotten my facts for episode one wrong, and and been confused all along. I decided to look back at my notes. And in my notes for episode one, I, I found a note of a Greta Investigates on Fox News. Greta Van Susteren reported that Logan arrived around noon, and that the Kessies the next hour. I watched it back two times. So, I hadn't gotten my facts wrong. They'd just been reported differently. So which one was it? At first I just thought I'd forget about it. It's minor, right? What difference does it make? But the more I thought about it, this could change a lot of things I thought I knew. Way more than it seemed at first. So I sent off an email to Joyce and I asked her what the deal was with her timeline and Greta's timeline and she told me point blank. Greta was mistaken. Why did I care about this seemingly insignificant time that much? Because many of the things that we consider evidence in this case, the water in the shower, the wet towel, this changes the impact of that evidence. Now we're finding water in the shower two and a half to three hours later than we originally thought. Now there's a damp towel some 17 hours after we originally thought those phones were turned off. This is huge. I'd already ruled out the towel being used the night before, but now, I'm certain. There's no way that towel is still wet if she showered the night before. None. And there's also the fact that a major, respectable news show is reporting incorrect facts. If they could get this wrong, what else has been reported incorrectly? To me, this ultimately means that everything is up for re-examination. There's something else I must mention here too. This revelation that the Kessies arrived at 3.15 and Jennifer's brother Logan and his friend Travis at 3pm, it affected something else. An event that we haven't even yet discussed on this show. On January 24th, 
when Logan first arrived at Jennifer's condo, he was out looking everywhere for her. And in doing so, he saw a work van in the parking lot. He knocked on the window and tried to talk to the men inside, but they didn't even acknowledge him. And when I had first heard about this, it seemed odd. Suspicious, even. Now, if you remember back to the original timeline I laid out in episode one, Logan arriving at the Mosaic at Millennia around noon, which is around the same time that the suspect is dropping off Jennifer's car and walking back to her condo. This seemed huge. Was Jennifer possibly inside the van? Did Logan potentially cross paths with the suspect in the parking lot? Why wouldn't they respond to him? It all seemed so suspicious. But now, now that we know that Logan arrived at the condo building at 3 p.m., three hours after her car was parked, three hours after the suspect would have walked back to her condo, it means absolutely nothing. Any potential possibilities of Logan and the suspect crossing paths are completely debunked. Such a small detail. A 2.5 or 3 hour difference in the arrival time of Jennifer's parents at her condo. All this evidence now doesn't really mean what we thought it meant. And in the case of the van, it means basically nothing. This all led me to keep thinking. What other details do we have wrong? What other seemingly small, incorrect facts make a world of difference or tell a tale of fiction in the proper narrative of Jennifer's disappearance? And those are questions that we're going to have to keep asking. For now, let's move on to the other confirmed location at the center of this case. The Huntington-on-the-Green condominium complex. The location Jennifer's car was dumped at on noon, January 24th which was later discovered on the morning of January 26th. I mentioned on the last show that between episode 1 and 2, I was traveling to Orlando. And I did. But before I did, I talked to Joyce. And in talking about the Huntington on the Green, she was reminded of something she had said just about a year ago. Funny, but not funny. Last year, at the 10-year mark, I remember when we had the press conference with the police saying, you know, in the Huntington on the Green, that condominium complex, there were young children and school-age children. And how many of them, now 11 years later, might have been at that age of 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, heard something, you know, it's a... Condominium complex is known for drugs, and that's where stolen cars get dropped off. It's it's rough. And I had said that in the news conference when they asked me a question. I said, you know, why? I don't understand how come the school resource officers can't bring up missing people. And if you don't want to make it about Jennifer, then just have a program on safety, personal safety awareness. But I really feel that if they would, if they would target those young school-age kids, because we both know, Sean, kids, are they soak everything up. 
Yeah. And how do you know that one of those kids didn't overhear somebody say something? I know it's 11 years later, but someone had to have seen something. Whether it's the kids that Joyce is talking about or someone else. You remember back from episode one that there was a tracking dog that followed a scent from her car back to a crack in the fence at the Mosaic at Millennia and back to Jennifer's condo. But the exact details had always been fleeting. There's conflicting reports. I wanted to get some more detail. The dog tracked the POI back to her condo. Do you have any details about yes. that? Yes, it, it back to her condo um, spot, not to the condo door, to the parking. She had to designate a parking spot. Okay. So the scent stopped at her parking space. I'd read it stopped at her front door, at the stairs, at the bushes below her balcony, and also I had heard at the parking spot. I'm not sure what it means, stopping at the parking spot. But at least we have an answer. Did he have a car parked next to hers? It seems like the only explanation. How could he drop the car off and walk back to her parking spot and just disappear? The logical explanation is that the person had a vehicle parked adjacent to her spot. Which reminds me. There was something that Joyce had said as I had talked to her on the phone. Something that's worth sharing. She was 5'8 and met and wearing three-inch heels and a very tall, confident young woman. Mm -hmm. If anybody would have come up to her short of them putting a knife around her neck, or a gun in her side, she would have fought tooth and nail. I mean, we used to be a law and order family, and Jennifer and I would, you know, whoever fell asleep the night before a law and or, or you know, the night of a law and order episode, we were on the phone. Hey, how did the episode end? Kind of deal. And she always knew this is freaky weird, and it's going to make me. Uh, I'm just going to say it. Christmas Eve, the exact month before Jennifer was abducted, her and I had a mother-daughter day, and we were, you know, talking about everything and nothing, and we wound up talking about carjackings. And Jennifer, creature of habit, would get in a car, take her elbow, lock the car button, put her seatbelt on. Mm-hmm. Well... As the creature of habit, in doing that, she also would look around her car. So she had to have been somehow, you know, maybe chloroformed because nobody heard her scream on the ground floor condo right by where her car was. So she would have had to have been, or maybe she could have been tasered. But Jennifer knew that if she was going to be carjacked, Sean, she knew that if somebody got in her car and had a gun or had a weapon, she knew to crash the car because she was wearing a seatbelt and had an airbag. She she knew that if she was in ever got put in the trunk of a car, if she had the capability to look for the trunk release or to kick out the taillight, like Mm -hmm. she knew this stuff. So. That's why it's so baffling and mind-blowing that 
Jennifer could have been the victim of a crime. So we struggle with that because we know how safe and aware of her surroundings that Jen is. And, and, you know, her friends used to tease her and call her Mother Hen because she always, you know, was just making sure that everybody was, you know, the girls would go out to downtown Orlando for the night. She was the one that would be making sure that everybody, we came together, we leave together kind of deal. And why it's so hard for us to, you can never accept something like this, but we just can't wrap our heads around how she could have become the victim other than her being chloroformed or tasered. Because even if somebody caught her in the hallway when she locked her condo door, and if she would have walked down the stairs to the car, maybe there was a van parked alongside of her car. And the van door opened and Jen got pulled in. I mean, there was an empty condo unit right across from Jen's uh, condo, and that unit was unlocked. Could someone have taken her in the hallway and brought her in the condo and taken her out some other way? I mean, your mind can go in a million different directions about that. Joyce's thoughts about the van actually made me think. It might actually make the fact that the person of interest walked back to Jennifer's condo make sense. They could have taken her car and dropped it off and then walked back to their van. But when I was in Orlando... Something else struck me as well. In between the Huntington on the Green and Jennifer's condo, there is no less than three or four bus stops directly along the route that the suspect walked. I always thought it was odd that the suspect would return to Jennifer's condo. It seems incredibly risky. But what if they didn't? If we consider an endpoint, at the Huntington on the Green, and another endpoint at the Mosaic at Millennia. And think about that the suspect's trail connects those two endpoints. A direct route from one point to the other isn't the only possibility. Could the suspect have gotten off at a bus stop at some point in the middle and walked to Jennifer's parking spot, abducted Jennifer using her own car, or perhaps another way, then dumped her car at the Huntington on the Green and walked back to the same bus stop. Would that look like a continuous path to the dog? I'm not sure I have any answers here, but it's something worth considering. But for now, there's some more important endeavors. It's weird to be here at Huntington on the Green knowing that there's so much mystery surrounding what happened and to walk the exact path that the POI walked is sort of surreal. Um, Kind of sad in a way, I guess, if that makes any sense. Just because I've passed by so many people and I'm, you know, give or take three hours, two hours, around the same time 
that the POI would have been walking. And so the feeling is, it's, and there's, I mean, there's more people standing outside of their apartments now than walking by. So it's a, it's an, it's an interesting feeling, um, knowing that this is really, this is the last clue. This is the only clue. This is where it sort of all stops. And something happened before here and something happened after here. And I think that's what, uh, that's what we want to figure out. And I'm just sort of standing here looking down the sidewalk that he could have walked down and then looking down the other way that he came and down Downing Street. That's Scott calling me when he was in Orlando. There is so much to get to. And we just don't have time in one episode. So we're going to save Scott and my experiences and developments and investigations on location in Orlando for episode three. But even more importantly than that, the video of the suspect is the most important thing from the Huntington on the Green. The grainy, slow capture video of the suspect parking Jennifer's car and walking away is the biggest piece of evidence in this whole case. You know, the FBI and everybody were out, and that's how they, you know, came up with the height for the person of interest. I still say they're, they were wrong. We take a hard look at that video and the person of interest next time on Unconcluded. I must admit that in starting this investigation, I asked myself a lot of questions. Is anyone ever going to hear it? Am I going to be able to get people involved to talk to me? It took exactly one episode to answer both of those questions. Your response to episode one has been more than I've ever expected. Thank you to all of you for joining this journey right from the start. And for that second part, after talking with Jennifer's mom, I'm not looking back. Remember that you can be a part of this. You can call our voicemail, send an email, write us on social media. All of those links are on our website, unconcluded.com. And many of you have already reached out, and we'll hope you continue to do so. Don't forget that if you enjoy the show, a review on iTunes and a subscription really helps us out. We'd appreciate that. Also, so many of you have asked for weekly episodes. And I promise, that is coming. But not quite yet. We'll be back in two weeks. And we'll see you then. Unconcluded is produced by Scott J. and myself. And all music is by PC3. PC3.